Our Heavenly Father, we have just sung to you and about you that you're the holy God, the giver of life, wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace. As we go to the hospital, we always lack peace. We don't know what's going to happen. We beg you to be the Prince of Peace. You're the everlasting Father. This world is not our home. Eternity is. And for Bill and, and his family, we, we ask you, the everlasting Father, to be the God of all comfort as you promised that you are. We don't pray for those who are departed because they're in better shape than we are by far. And for that great hope, Heavenly Father, we thank you. And to the end, you've given us your word to give us a, just a glimpse of your, your nature, your heart, your plan for us. And it is to that word we now turn. and We ask you to give us insight not just into what it says, but what it means for us as a congregation. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Um, I, I suspect almost all of us here are fond of, of mysteries. Um, it's one of the most common categories of books or movies that we have in our, our culture. Um, you're familiar with Sherlock Holmes, I'm sure, and Agatha Christie, and the Hardy Boys, and John Grisham, and Steg Larson, and Perry Mason, and CSI, and we could go on and on and on about all the programs on TV, the books that are written that are novels, mystery novels, all oftentimes they're um, whodunits. What is a mystery? I went online, and this is what it said. This is from the dictionary. A mystery is a novel a short story, a play, or a film whose plot involves a crime or other event that remains puzzlingly unsettled until the very end. And we're very familiar with them. What is a mystery? A mystery, of course, begins with a problem. It's a crime takes place, a caper occurs, a problem has to be solved. Oftentimes it's a whodunit. Something bad happened and we don't know whodunit. Then there are characters. A, a circle of characters in the story emerge, and each of these characters has some legitimate, perhaps hidden motive for having committed the crime and a reasonable opportunity to have done so. So now we have the characters, and then we have the plot. In the plot of a murder mystery or other kind of mystery, they drop clues and they foreshadow things, and the plot thickens, and then sometimes you have red herrings. A red herring is a, a kind of foreshadowing or a clue that leads you in the wrong direction, and you don't get to your final goal. And generally, the plot involves a spectacular twist at some point that changes your thinking, and you go, oh, I should have seen that, but usually you didn't. And then, Every single good murder mystery or other kind of mystery involves a detective. Somebody who um, eventually solves the mystery from deducing from the facts and watching for little tiny details. And oftentimes, the detective is a real bumbler. Think Columbo. 
And then there's a solution. And more times than not, the solution is not complicated. It's rather simple. And then there's the, the end of it, the solution, and then the conclusion. Generally, mysteries try to teach some kind of a lesson or a moral. They're trying to convey some idea to us. So those are the constituent parts of a mystery. We enjoy them. Why? Well, we all like with our minds to engage our minds and to solve problems. We, um, we like to um, explore issues. They force us to look into our own hearts sometimes. And uh, they're just kind of fun. Now today, we're going to be introduced to a mystery. How do I know that? Well, in our text of scripture today, which is found in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to use the word mystery three times. He actually uses the word mystery many times in the book of Ephesians and 21 times in all of his writings. He likes this word because Paul tells us that God has told us through him, in many ways, a mystery that no one would have figured out if God hadn't let us in on the secret. And so today, Paul is going to set us on an adventure in finding a mystery. And in this text of scripture today, the mystery is the mystery, if you want to name it, the mystery of the Messiah. That's the mystery. And the first thing we're going to see as we look through this mystery is who's the detective? Who's the detective that is going to uncover the mystery? And that's going to be obvious because Paul's going to say, me, 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 I. Paul's the detective. And then he's going to give us just in one, one single verse, this is what the mystery is. Because um, like uh, in, in a murder mystery, um, let's say of the Orient Express of Agatha Christie, somebody's dead and we don't know who did it, but it's got to be one of us on this train because there's no one else here. So that's um, the, the content. What is the mystery? And then he's going to show us that though he is the detective who uncovers this mystery, he's the least likely person to do it in the world. And we'll see why. And then he's going to end with, this is why God has chosen to reveal this mystery. This is what he's trying to show us. This is the moral of the story. This is the lesson he's trying to teach us. So that's what we're going to do today. If you have a Bible, cell phone, iPad, whatever it may be, Open it up, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Now, remember what Paul tends to do? Remember we start, when we went into the first chapter, we talked about this text of Scripture that was many, more than 10 verses, only one sentence. He does it again here. Verses 1 to 7 is only one sentence, and verses 8 to 13 is only one other sentence. So this whole passage of 13 verses in Greek is only two sentences. Remember, Paul's not really good with periods. He's real good with commas and semicolons, but he doesn't know how to put a period. He's so full of what God is doing that he, um, he doesn't know how to stop. And so let's see what the Apostle Paul tells us about, first of all, the detective who reveals the mystery. So, let me ask you some questions. You can shout out your answer. Who is the detective in Agatha Christie's 
Perot and Miss Marple. Oh, somebody's been reading. Oh, yes. Okay, let's try this. Sherlock. Um, oh, I, I told you the answer. Sherlock Holmes. Okay, try this one. The Pink Panther series. Oh, wow. Somebody's been reading. That's fantastic. Okay, I got to. Okay, G.K. Chesterton. Anyone know this one? Father Brown. Brown. Yes, yes. Great. You're doing great. Okay, how about, well, um, in Murder She Wrote, Jessica Fletcher. Oh, good. You, you're too good here. I didn't know half of those, but you knew them all. Okay, here's Paul. He's now going to identify himself as the one that God chose to reveal the mystery. We don't know what the mystery is yet. That's coming. Here's how he begins. For this reason. Now, whenever someone says, for this reason, you always have to look back to what they just wrote. Remember what he just wrote about? He said that God, because of what Jesus has done, has created this new group of people. I call it a new humanity. A new group of people whose identity is found in Him, in Jesus. Because God has created this new humanity, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul, by the way, he's writing this from prison. We don't know exactly where he's in prison because he liked prison. He was in lots of prisons. But he wrote this from one of those prisons. He says, I am a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. And by the way, do you know why Paul was in prison? We do know we, don't know, we don't know where he was in prison, but we know why. If Paul had come along and said, Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah, and you Gentiles, if you want to become part of this Messiah movement, all you've got to do is to convert to Judaism and become part of the Messiah group. But he wasn't saying that. If he had said that, everyone would have just said, okay, we'll check that out, that's okay. But that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, not, is that Jesus is the Messiah, who is the Messiah not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. Those unclean, uncircumcised, unlaw-following Gentiles. He's the Messiah of the Jews and the Gentiles. Now that's a problem. He said, that's why I'm in prison. I'm in prison because I have proclaimed this gospel is for the Gentiles. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. But by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of man, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Paul said, this is my passion. I have been called by God to bring the good news about Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection to the Gentiles. And I'm willing to pay any price for that, including being in prison for the sake of this message. 
And the message is that God has brought Jews and Gentiles together into a new humanity, and I have been given a stewardship to carry this message faithfully everywhere I go. And this message, though it has not been clear in time past, the apostles and the prophets, the prophets being the Old Testament prophets, the apostles being Jesus' followers, they did give us a glimpse into it. You see, Paul was chosen by God to be the detective who would uncover and expose and proclaim and explain the mystery. Now, what assets did he bring to the job? God specifically chose this man at this time to be the detective. Why? Well, the first thing, he gets it. Paul understood the mystery. He was a Jewish rabbi. Remember, he was the valedictorian of his class. He is, he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In his home, he spoke Hebrew, even though he was raised in a Greek culture. He was a Roman citizen, though he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a strict Pharisee. He was more zealous than anyone else. He was at the top of his class. So he understood the Old Testament scriptures incredibly well. But not only did he have extensive knowledge about the background of the Old Testament, but he was willing to pay any price, including imprisonment and death. And he's going to spend a lot of his life in prison and eventually he's going to lose his head. He's willing to pay any price for this gospel. Moreover, he loved his job as a detective. Why? Because he loves the Gentiles. This ardent Jew who began his public work of killing Christians now becomes the great lover of these Gentile Christians. And he acknowledges the fact that he didn't, he wasn't, he didn't understand this mystery because he was so smart or because he was such a well-trained detective. He got this because God revealed it to him. He had some outside help. And this is not something new. He said, we've been given glimpses of this for years through the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures and now from the apostles in the New Testament times. Let me ask us a question. Ask yourself, I'll ask myself. How do I stack up as a detective? What if God called us? Actually, he did. Because now we're the bearers of the mystery. We haven't come to it yet, but it's coming. We're the detectives. How do we stack up? Do, do we understand the gospel? Do we get it? Paul did. Um, are, are we passionate about people and their eternal destiny? Oh, Paul was. Are we willing to pay a price? Increasingly, probably as Christians in this country, we all have to pay a price. Paul was ready to pay any price. Do we love our job? One of the best words in the whole Bible for who we are as Christians is we are ambassadors. An ambassador is someone that's sent to a foreign country to represent a sovereign in their homeland. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our treasures are laid up, as Bill told us about his wife today, somewhere beyond the blue. That's our home. We're here as ambassadors. We're here to represent our sovereign. Our sovereign is Jesus. That's how Paul saw himself, and we are as well.
And any good detective knows that you didn't figure it out yourself. Paul had help. So now I hope you're asking yourself, okay, okay, we get the point. Paul's a good detective. What's the mystery? That's the next point. What is this mystery that Paul is so pumped up about? Verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There it is. I'll read it again. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what's the main word? What's the main word? Fellow, yes. Your fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. What does the word fellow mean? Pardon? Okay, some of your translations go this way. This is um, the NIV, the New American. The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. What's the main word? What's the point of those words? What's the point of fellow, 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 together, together, together? This is the mystery. What's the mystery? That's it? Oh, it must be quite a mystery because we don't get it. The mystery is in the fellow or together. You see, the Jewish people believed, and rightly so. Who are the Jewish people according to the Old Testament? God's chosen people. Where do they live? In the promised land. They are God's people to whom he gave his law and to whom he sent the prophets. But now all that their prophets looked forward to and everything to which their temple pointed, it's all been fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus. So now the Gentiles are brought into this mix like this, right? Here's the Jewish people, God's chosen people, His promised land, the, all the Jewish rituals and things, and now the Gentiles are brought in like this. Oh, what did you say? Yes, Johnny. That's, no, what's wrong with that? It's not like that. It's oh, Thank you. Show us. Yeah, it's this. That's the mystery. The mystery is it's not this. It's this. Now, that is a, that's a problem. But throughout the whole Old Testament, God had been dropping clues. Just like a good mystery writer does. What they do is they drop clues all the time. And if you are tuned into those clues, you pick up on them. From Genesis all the way to Malachi, God has constantly dropped clues. Let me read some of the clues for you. See if you can pick up what God is trying to say. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
Psalm 22:27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Psalm 46:10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Psalm 47:9. The nobles of the nations as the people of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Isaiah 11:10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Isaiah 49:6. God says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 2.11 Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Malachi 1.11 My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations. What's, what was the common theme? God is going to bring his salvation to the nations, to the whole world. You see, the Jewish people thought, no, no, this is just for us. This theocracy they lived under, uh, under God's rule was now going to be expanded into an international community that would involve all the nations of the world, so much so that there will never be in heaven any tribal group that's ever existed that there are not people in heaven representing that group and that language before the throne of God. God's plan always was to bring this together. Um, someone wrote this. It would have been abhorrent to the first century Jew to have entertained the thought that Jews and Gentiles could be equal. That Levites and non-Levites could be equal. That priests and non-priests could be equal. That royalty and commoners could be equal. That free men and slaves could be equal. That males and females could be equal. That's the key, is that we're together. Remember, we just studied a passage. Remember all those barriers between Jews and Gentile? they were, Gentiles, they were massive. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he busted those barriers, set them all apart. He destroyed those barriers so that Jews and Gentiles could actually have a potluck together because we could eat the same food. He had to bust the barriers down. One would have expected that the Christian church would have two tiers. And here are the tiers. Jews and Gentiles. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Law keepers and uh, those people that believe in law light. The religious haves and the religious have-nots. The most favored ones and the less favored ones. The spiritually mature and the spiritually immature. The biblically astute and the biblically ignorant. But God didn't do that. He didn't say Jews and Gentiles. He said, 
circumcised and uncircumcised. He says, I don't care about the flesh. I want people with circumcised hearts. He didn't talk about law keepers and law breakers. He says, I want, it is for liberty that Christ has set you free. He's not looking for either legalists or licentious people. He didn't say the religious haves and have nots, those who are more religious and those who are less. He says, I don't care about either of those. I'm looking for a relationship with the living God. Totally different. I'm not looking for um, most favored ones and least favored ones because grace has made all of us level. You see, the Jewish people didn't come into the kingdom of God because they were better than anyone else. In fact, the Bible tells us they were worse. What brings us into the kingdom of God? We're saved by grace through faith alone. None of us are better than any other. Remember that famous line from Animal Farm by George Orwell? I love it. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. It's kind of the major, uh, he's trying to explain uh, what communism is. You know, yeah, we're all equal here, but some are more equal than others. And that's kind of how we run the church. Well, we're all equal, but um, we have clergy and laity. We have the spiritually gifted and the spiritually bankrupt. We've got the married and the divorced. We've got the spirit-filled and the not spirit-filled. We have the hardcore Christians and the softcore Christians. We've got the hand raisers and the hand folders. And we've got the spiritual ones and the carnal ones. We had a man in our church in, in Longmont. He was from Romania. And he married actually a missionary while he was in Romania and then came to the United States. The missionaries from the United States and they got divorced. Dear man. And his family was still in Romania. And I said, oh, aren't you going to go back and see your family? He said, oh, I could never. They would never accept me in the church because I've been divorced. I said, That's, we do that too. Here we are. There's our division. No. No, come back to Johnny. This is it. No, it's not this. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have rather miserably, unfortunately. I remember there was a man also in our church. He was one of our missionaries. He was a missionary in the Soviet Union. And he said when he came and talked to us and when the wall came down and the Soviet Union was no longer, he said, you know what happened in the church? Immediately the church went like this. And now the leaders were those who had suffered under communism and those who hadn't. If you had not suffered, you were second class. If you had suffered under communism, you were first class. So you had your first class Christians and your second class Christians. That's not the way God did it. Um, when I was a pastor in Longmont, as I was for 26 years, I think the most common question I got from visitors who came to our church, the most common was this, are you a spirit-filled church? Do you know what they meant by that? They meant, are you a charismatic church? That's what they meant. They said, if I understand the Bible correctly, once you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit has come to live in you. That's what the Bible says. But that's not what they said. No, no. We want to, are you one of those spirit-filled churches? Are you second class? 
Again, same thing. We keep doing it. We cannot stop. That's the mystery. The mystery is, no, this is the church. We're all in this together. There are no first and second class citizens in the church. Because frankly, which of us deserves eternal salvation? It's all a gift. It's God's gift. We don't, none of us deserve it. None of us are better than anybody else. We know that. That's one of the beauties of our God. Well, after Paul's revealed the mystery, he then um, says, um, uh, oh, he says, well, okay, why would God pick me? Do you remember Columbo? I mentioned it before. I like Columbo. He's just so much fun. Um, he's a, he's a, a blue-collar homicide detective. He looks like a homeless man. He's always disheveled. He's overly polite. He's kind of a bumbler, and he wears that rumpled beige raincoat, and he smokes a cigar, or he chews on it. He pesters people, but he has a keen eye for detail. And if you think of anybody who's not going to be a very good detective, it's got to be Columbo. And yet, what does he do every time? He solves the caper. And the Apostle Paul, when he looks at himself, he probably says, now why in the world would God pick me? Here's what he said. This is verse 7 through 9. Of which I was made, the word is deacon, of which I was made a deacon, a servant. First of all, so he says, why would God choose me? My status is I'm a servant according to the gift of God's grace. God selected me not because I was the best and the brightest, but because He is gracious. It's all God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power, not mine. To me, the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. The likelihood of God choosing me is not very high. And by the way, do you know what the word Paul means? It's a Latin word that means little. He says, my, even my name reflects who I am. I'm little. I'm the least likely. But God picked me. Have you, have you thought about God's draft choices? Now, if God was putting together a professional football team, oh my, you'd think it is the worst draft you've ever seen, and yet they win the Super Bowl. You want to know some of them? Here they are. God chose a family of liars. Abraham was a liar. Twice lied to pawn off his wife. Isaac was a liar, did the same thing. Jacob's very name means the big fat liar. That's what his name means. And his sons lied to him miserably. All liars. And who does God pick to bring us the truth? A family of liars. That's who he picks. And who does God bring, choose to bring us his law? A murderer. Moses. A murderer in cold blood is the one who gives us God's holy law. And who is God going to pick to bring order out of oppression? A bunch of misfits called the judges. 
And who does God call a hero of faith? A sex addict named Samson. Read it. He's a hero of faith. And who is the only person, to my knowledge, in the whole Bible called a man after God's own heart? An adulterer, murderer, and liar, David. And who does God choose to be the first witnesses of Christmas? Unreliable shepherds. And who does God choose to be Jesus' best man to introduce him to the world? A homeless dude in bad clothes who eats bugs, John the Baptist. And who does God choose to be the first witnesses of the resurrection? Women. And who is the first entrant into paradise with Jesus? A thief on the cross. And who is the apostle to the Gentiles? A Jewish rabbi who hated and killed Christians. And what does God do with this team? He changed the whole world. What a draft picks. They're brilliantly bad and yet perfect. Why? Why would God do this? Maybe to teach the world the most valuable lesson that it is by grace through faith, not works, not merits, not track record, not rituals, not rules. It's by grace through faith that we have been saved. And again, thank you, Johnny. That's why, to put us together. <laughs> oh, you, you just brought me to my last point. Show off to whom? somebody in special. These are the last verses. I can't believe you'd say that. Look at, okay. Here's the last verses, 10 to 13. So that, why did God do this? So that the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Why did God do this? because he wants to show off to the angels. There are two kinds of angels. What are they? Good ones and bad ones. Good ones are called angels. Bad ones are called demons. Which ones are you going to show off to? Both. Listen to this. This is um, um, to the good angels. In, look at 1 Peter 1.12. God the angels are going to look at what God's doing through the church and they're going to just go with them. They're, they're going to, their mouths are going to go, wow, it's amazing. Here's what Warren Wiersbe wrote. What are the evil angels learning from God's mystery? That their leader, Satan, does not have any wisdom. Satan knows the Bible. And he understood from the Old Testament scriptures that the Savior would come, when he would come, how he would come, and where he would come. Satan also understood why he would come, as far as redemption is concerned. But nowhere in the Old Testament would Satan find any prophecies concerning the church, the mystery of Jews and Gentiles united in one body. 
Satan could see unbelieving Jews rejecting their Messiah and he could see Gentiles trusting the Messiah but he could not see both believing Jews and Gentiles united in one body seated with Christ in the heavenlies and completely victorious over Satan had Satan known the far-reaching results of the cross no doubt he would have altered his plans accordingly God hid his great plan from the beginning of the world and now he wants the mystery to be known by his church God is doing this to show off to the angels so the first purpose in revealing this mystery is to marvel is to marvel and perhaps educate the angels good and bad in the heavens through Christ and the church someone called it a graduate school for the angels but that's not the end here's how we Paul ends in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf for they are for your glory God's second purpose in revealing this mystery is to engender confidence so that we can enter into God's presence boldly because of the way that has been made for us by Jesus. We don't have to stand behind in the court of the women or the court of the Gentiles. We can go boldly through, through the, the veil into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God as Gentiles. Amazing. But God's third purpose in revealing this mystery is to give people a different perspective on tribulation. Paul says, don't be, don't be alarmed by the fact that I'm in prison. Don't be alarmed by the fact that I'm getting beat up from time to time. This is worth it all. That's what he's trying to do. So, where do we go? Let me end with these points. Number one, multi-tiered Christianity is a contradiction in terms. The haves, the have-nots, the spiritual ones, the unspiritual ones, the spirit-filled, the non-spiritual, the hand-raisers. Multi-tiered Christianity is a contradiction in terms. You've heard it, I've said it several times, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Here's, here's the difference. Let's, here, this is the truth. If God lined all, all of us up as human beings on Ellis Island and gave us a baseball, and said, you can get to heaven if you can throw that ball and hit Big Ben in London. That, that, that's the truth. That is exactly what God did. God says, okay, I'll give you, everyone every year as a human being, so I'm going to give you a baseball, you've got to hit Big Ben in London. Now, there are people who can throw the baseball farther than any of us can. Some of us can't throw it very far. Some of us can throw farther. But are you going to be impressed that someone threw it for 400 feet and you only got 300? So, oh, isn't that great? 400 feet. That's thousands of miles. 400 feet is nothing. Why would you say, oh, man, Nolan Ryan got that thing 403 feet. He's really great. No, no, that wasn't the goal. The goal was Big Ben in London. And to, to, to honor someone that got 403 feet is an absolute joke. That's a joke because it's not even close. You see, multi-tiered Christianity is not God's way. This is God's way. We're in this together. Our divisions are not only diabolical, but they also deprive the angels of what they're supposed to be learning from us, good and bad. 
The good angels look at what God is doing through the church and they're in wonder and awe. The bad angels are saying, Satan is a jerk. Satan is a I bet they're really fighting each other. That's great. That's what we want them to do. We deprive the angels of what they should learn. And we are designed by God to model this mystery. You see, one of the things that's so different about the church than any other organization is that we are called by God to love people we may not like. Because you see, every other organization, you choose who can enter and who, who you can't. And today we're separating over all kinds of things and those people who don't agree with we, us, we just cancel them. We get rid of them as if they don't exist. God says you can't do that in the church because we're all in this together. We are called to love people we might not even like, who we would not choose to befriend. Why? Because God put them as part of the body. And we're in it together. And that will cause the angels to marvel if they see what God can do in us. One of the commentators wrote this. The churches Paul wrote to were in most cases small house churches, smaller than Trinity, insignificant groups by anyone's estimation. Yet, Paul spoke of their multinational character and cosmic effect. He saw the church as prototypes of God's end-time community and as witnesses to the powers. For most of us, the church is a place that puts on services. That's not what we are. We're a community of God's people who elicit wonder in the heavenlies. And we are who we're intended by God to be. If you remember nothing else from this service, remember this. Not this. But this. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your plan is brilliant. We've messed it up pretty badly. But you redeem everything, including our mess-ups. I pray that this body would be of places, even though small in number, we could be big and loving one another. Maybe people we would not normally associate with, but we love one another because we've been bought by the blood of the Lamb and we are followers of Christ and we don't have these hierarchies among us. Oh, I pray your Holy Spirit would create a body in this place that is that is a, a deep-seated love for one another and would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray in his name.